This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Craig LaHuyer, who is the author of Epic Tomatoes and a fantastic speaker. And you've been all over the country in the last, since you wrote that book, haven't you? Oh, Daryl. Well, first of all, hello, um, happy spring, and thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you again. This is always one of my favorite parts of the year when we have our chat, so very appreciated. Good. I Let's see, am I in Raleigh today? <laughs> um, I, I remain a bit flabbergasted, um, just pretty joyful about the fact that people seem to want to hear my tomato stories. And this calendar year, uh, we've gotten to go out to Seattle, of course, um, Chicago. I seem to end up in Virginia an awful lot. And... Um, doing some local things around around the Raleigh area, which are fun. Uh, my next biggie that I'm really looking forward to is I'm going to be doing a course on tomatoes, pretty much from the history right through seed saving at Longwood Gardens, which oh, kind of wonderful. will be a dream. It will be a dream come true event for me. Um, when Sue and I lived in Pennsylvania, we'd go to North, we'd go to Longwood Garden every season, and it's just one of our favorite places. So um, I just. I, mean, I guess you could say I feel like the luckiest fellow in the world right now, and I'm meeting lots of great gardeners, feeding off their energy. Hopefully they're feeding off my energy, and um, I'm having a blast. What can I say? <laughs> gardeners are the best people in the world. They are. Especially, they, are. They, they almost always want to share. And you mentioned when we were emailing back and forth that you had, you've been collecting seeds from people on some of these trips. What have you gotten and what are you going to do with them? Yeah, so in general, each garden takes on the characteristic of either the seeds I've collected that year or the projects and the project progress points and what we need to attack. But in in my various travels over the last year and a half, meeting all of these gardeners, gardening friends, and, of course, them exhibiting the very thing that you said, the the desire to share and give. In my garden this year is going to be an Uncle Joe, and and Uncle Joe is a tomato that is a family heirloom from up in Virginia, and it was given to me at the end of my talk in Leesburg, Um, and it was great. After the Q&A session, they had me stand up and uh, the person whose family this tomato was in came up and gave me the envelope. And it took me back to a story of a tomato I have called Yellow White, where in 1922, seeds of this white tomato were given as a wedding gift. And, and think about a packet of seeds as a wedding gift. Wow. Um, that's not like today where, you know, where are you registered and what little coffee set or what, what, what gold or copper do you want. It was 
seeds. And, and so I felt it was very appropriate and touching that someone would give me the gift of seeds, someone who is so enthralled with heirlooms like I am. So Uncle Joe is going to be out there. Someone has sent me Aunt Edna. And I love the name of that because one of my favorite aunts was my grandmother's sister, Edna. Um, the, Mar- the Maris family heirloom, one from Europe called Yusupov, Y-U-S-O-P-O-V. Um, a fellow at the Asheville um, Mother Earth News Fair last year gave me Abraham Brown. And this year he came back. It's a family heirloom, and he asked if I'm growing the seeds. And I said, they're up and growing. They're potato leaf. He was all excited, and he now can't wait to see how I blog the progress of Abraham Brown. Um, a fellow named Walt Swoka sent me a family heirloom. I've got seeds of a variety that David Ellis from the American uh, from American Gardener's grandfather had, the Springston heirloom, and one from a friend in Raleigh called Mama's Huge Orange that was in her, her family for generations. So. There will be, I will look at tomato plants, and for eight of those plants, I won't be seeing the plants and the tomatoes so much as the story of the person, the name of the person. And it, and it allows you, when people come into your garden, to say, there's a little bit of history growing, there's a little bit of genealogy, there's a little bit of nostalgia, and we'll get to taste these. And uh, I expect them to be wonderful, because if they've been handed down and valued in a family for these you know, decades and decades, I just can't wait to see what these are going to do. So people should watch my blog. I will be regularly reporting on these. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe I'll have to call it all in the family at the end of the year <laughs> to see how these Oh, I out. like that. <laughs> I like that. I love tomatoes with stories. And that's one of the reasons I love to grow heirlooms, because you do have the history behind, behind them. You know that what's been passed down from generation to generation. And you're actually growing part of their family. Exactly right, and it's. I think many of us took on gardening because of a family member or a loved one, or maybe it was just a great friend. And and I think, as I've said before, it was my grandfather, Walter Gibson, my mother's side, that from a very early age, two or three years old, my love for him, because I was his favorite grandkid, he was my favorite grandparent, and the time and the patience that he spent with me taking him through his gardens is really, that was the seed that got planted in me that then went dormant for decades until I met my wife. And in a way, our marriage was the fertile soil that I needed for that seed to germinate again. And that then blossomed into a love of gardening that started the year we were married in 1981 and has continued unabated to this day. So um, so stories are important. And when I, when I talk in front of audiences, when I tell about the story of my grandfather or the people that have given me seeds that have been handed down, I see a lot of nodding heads, Daryl, and it's not always about gardening. It's not always about gardening. It could be the time they went with their grandmother fishing. It could be the time where they got in their car, their great-grandparents were still around, and maybe they went to the fair. It's, I think anything in, in, in this world where there is so much acrimony and polarization and the, and the possibility for bad feelings, I think when people can reconnect to a happy time of their past through nostalgia, it's valid, and it's a way for us to pull ourselves out of the dips that we get into occasionally and uh, just feel good about the world again, feel good about ourselves. Uh, And this is where, to me, gardening, there's a spiritual, philosophical aspect to gardening. It isn't just putting seeds in soil and harvesting fruit. 
there's that whole parallel reality of what it can do for your mental and physical well-being that I consider yeah. equally important to it. I, I, you know, and a lot of, I've always felt that way too, and a lot of studies now have proven that that is the case. Uh, studies of many, many people from many different kinds of neighborhoods and backgrounds, and it, keeps them grounded, it improves their mood. You read all the time about how people, once they get into the garden again for the season, even if they've been suffering with really severe depression over the winter, they get out there, they see the world, they see the seed, and there's something that is so optimistic about a seed sprouting. It's optimistic, and the cyclical nature of it means that even if the year is difficult, and for a tomato lover, maybe three out of six years will be really difficult. Maybe one out of those six years will be devastating. But the cyclical nature, the reappearance of the seed catalogs in the winter, the fact that you can do this all again, and the fact that through the devastation or the difficulties, you've probably learned something, which means that the following year you may have some different troubles, but you're more than likely not to repeat the same troubles. So there's this iterative improvement in gardening. And one of the things that I really try to tell people who come to my talk is it's not, you know, you can garden by putting a plant in the ground and minimally tending it and you'll get something at the end, but the plant will probably not thrive and it probably will not reach its maximum potential. And you won't reach the maximum joy out of the gardening experience. I see it as something that then provides a place to go and, and something to do and look at and ponder every single day from the day you plant that seed until the time you harvest the last produce from your garden and reading your plants, understanding what they're telling you through the color of their foliage or whether they're wilting or not wilting. And um, I think being an observant gardener is a wonderful thing. And I know that today there's a saying, being mindful. And my wife says that to me as a way sometimes to slow me down. Um, I can feel quite manic sometimes because, you know, the book has been a great experience and it's led to events. And those events lead to planning. And sometimes when you look ahead, you don't see the space between the events. You see them all coming at you like the light of the tra in the train tunnel. It's like, oh, my God, how am I going to get all these done? But then time goes on. They space out, and, and Sue is like, just be mindful and enjoy what you're doing at the moment. So if you're out there transplanting, don't think about the next three talks. If you're going to be planting, don't think about the transplanting or the weeding. Or, and, and it's true. I think in this world we live at where we've got so much electronic stuff to draw us away, we, our minds can be just swirled into a maelstrom of, of panic and activity and just an inability to actually relax and be in the moment and enjoy what we're doing. So what I'm getting to is gardening allows you to be in the moment and relish just the act you're doing at the moment. And I love standing in the garage and transplanting vegetable seedlings. It's, it's slow. It's peaceful. The soundtrack is either the humming of the fluorescent lights or the buzzing of the damselflies or the birds singing. And uh, you can work out a lot of life's problems standing out there getting your hands dirty with seedlings. You absolutely can. Uh, that's, that's been one of my saviors through so many ups and downs in my life, uh, like when my parents became ill and, you know, all right. that old age stuff that we all face. Oh, yeah. And the one thing 
coming back from the hospital or something like that, you get in your driveway and you're standing there and you smell the flowers and you brush past the tomato plants and you smell the tomato plants. Yes. And it brings you back grounded. Yes, it does. And it don't you, before even that, you experience a little bit of the anxiety of what you're going to find. So there are times we've mm-hmm. taken a week's vacation or a two-weeks vacation and we've put my daughter in charge. And sometimes I'm like, I'm almost hesitant to go look because I'm a little afraid of what I'm going to find. Are the plants going to be wilted? Are the plants going to be diseased? Did deer strike? And more often than not, you kind of nudge yourself in and you ease in. And maybe the plants look a little dry. Maybe there's a nibble here and there. But invariably, it's all good. And you grab the hose and you water. And and part of coming home from vacation actually is reintegrating into your garden and slipping into that hammock. That's the feeling of being in the garden. It, and it's, I don't know, you just kind of sleep better. We're back from our vacation. It was a great vacation. I missed my garden. Now I'm home. Home is good. The garden's good. All is right with the world. You know, good night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. philosophical you, here. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you mention... Um, you miss your garden. When we used to go up to Maine, um, I would miss my garden so much that I would uh-huh. go over to the neighbor's garden and help them pull weeds just to get into the garden. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we need to talk about some problems that a lot of people may be having this year because of the weird weather and how we can work to overcome them. And we will come back and talk about more of that right after this. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this morning my guest is Craig LaHulier, the North Carolina tomato man. And right before the break, we were talking about some of the shared seeds that we had that he has received from those of you that have um, visited him at the, at the talks that he's been giving. And, when, and, and we also wanted to talk to you today a little bit about starting seeds. I know some of you are afraid to start seeds, and but most of the time it's pretty easy. And But this year, and in some cases last year, the weather has not cooperated. 
It's it's been crazy. So, Craig, what's been going on in your seed starting garden? Well, what has made this year particularly interesting is weaving the seed starting activity with my speaking activities, which um, have made things a little interesting. So, so typically, I use a rule where I leave one month between seeding and transplanting because I do like to plant thickly. Um, I, I go into this in great detail in my book, but I plant thickly because I need to be able to produce several thousand seedlings just on a table in front of a window, no greenhouse, then I have a garage, then I have a sunny driveway. So I plant thick. I'll, I'll plant 20, 30, 40 seeds in a one-and-a-half-inch cell, meaning I can get 1,500 or 2,000 plants in a one-by-two-foot footprint. And uh, Wow. So... Yeah, so so I'll usually start mid-February. I'm moving them into individual three-and-a-half-inch pots mid-March. That's a lot of fun. That's the therapeutic part I talked about last uh, the last mm-hmm. segment. And then it takes about a month for them to get into plant-out size. And I use that because April 15th is when people in the Raleigh area are chomping at the bit. Now, this year, of course, Mother Nature threw curveballs, knuckleballs, screwballs, and all kinds of balls at us weather-wise where... I was having Wygelia blooming in December. We were having Bradford pears blooming before our red buds, and daffodils were coming up. So that's one aspect of it. So the combination of strange weather, um, it was so warm so soon that everyone was wanting seedlings way earlier than one should plant tomato plants. So that was freaking me out a little bit. But then with the travel, my seedlings stayed in front of the window a little longer than is typical, meaning they got a little bit leggier, which is fine. Leggy, you know, they they exhibit phototropism and they go to the light. And while we were away in Seattle, my daughter was doing a good job of rotating the flats so that they would bend back the other way. But they started getting a little disentangled with each other and didn't quite look as good. That, That can all be remedied. Once I got to transplanting and got things moving, um... I had to do it a little sooner than usual, but I did harden them off okay, and they were coming on. Then we had a week where I was in Asheville where the, we had three forecast 27-degree nights. That's even I, – I can't do the remay floating road cover thing with 27. I would have – I would not have been able to sleep while we were in Asheville because in all likelihood I would have lost a lot of those seedlings to frost. So they – all of them, all several thousand came into the garage for a full week in the dark. Wow. I, we got home from Asheville. They went out. The day they went out, we had a day and a half of torrential, cold, windy rain. The next day, it got hot and the sun came out. And so if you look at my seedlings right now, you can it's like reading the rings of a tree to cut down to see how old they are. I can look at my foliage and I can tell when they were in the garage, when they came out, and when they got sunburned. And this is an interesting um, topic in that it's not often that standard tomato diseases that strike plants later will strike seedlings, meaning things like early blight or fusarium. Those lead to spotted leaves and blemished leaves, but usually the plants have been growing on somewhat. They're a foot or two tall. You're getting some real heat and humidity. Spotting and blemishing on young seedlings is more a case of a physiological condition, meaning they weren't hardened off properly and it got really windy and essentially just bleached the water out of the leaves or the sun just sunburned the leaves. 
And, and so when you're assessing young seedlings, either your own or ones that you're buying from people, you have to be a little bit understanding that some of the things you're seeing that are imperfections, the plant will grow just fine out of. And that becomes a bit of an art. How, how do I know if a seedling has a true problem, a vascular problem, a disease problem that's going to show up, meaning a dead plant in two months, versus this is a particularly unhappy seedling because the poor thing has been subject to all kinds of weather it doesn't like. And once the weather smooths out, warms at night, everything starts taking off. That's where I am now, is my seedlings are outgrowing their ugly initial growth. And the other thing, Daryl, that you'll find is eggplant and peppers do not like cool weather when they're young seedlings, and they will grow very, very slowly. They'll almost go into complete suspended animation when it's cool. And certain varieties of tomatoes, like sun gold, crave the heat so much that young seedlings inevitably look dreadful. And I've had many a customer bring young sun gold back to me because the lower leaves get a little bit speckled. And, And I'll just say, it just hates the cold. It hates the rain. It hates the cold rain. Trust me. And they go back and they have a fantastic crop. So I'm, I'm actually having to educate some of my customers on how ugly non-greenhouse-grown sun gold seedlings look. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just, it reminds me maybe of kids when they're in adolescence and, you know, their skin doesn't look so hot and they worry about how they look. <laughs> they outgrow it. So sun gold definitely has, uh, well, I don't know, maybe we'll call it tomato acne or some version of um, <laughs> ugly foliage that it, that it outgrows. Um, so where I'm at right now is I'm starting to plant out. Um, I've still got a driveway. Well, we've significantly reduced our seedling sales because I really want to get more into writing and talks. And there's, I'm bringing some seedlings to some of my talks, and some friends that we've had for 15 or 20 years are coming by. But um, for the most part, I am, I'm in the process of trying to sort out what I want to plant in my garden because, as we all know, when we're a tomato or vegetable or pepper or eggplant enthusiast, we probably start sometimes twice as many varieties as we can fit, and mm-hmm. then we, the cut then gets made when it's time to plant out. And then we start the squeeze-in process because we don't want to throw away something that we've started. <laughs> it's sure. And it becomes a little stressful. So that's kind of where things are with me. Well, I, I, I'm glad that you told me about sun gold because I didn't know that. I knew that about peppers and eggplants, just yeah. hating the cold. and. Yeah. Of course, we had a cold early spring last year, and I kept them. I kept my plants under cover as much as I could. I have a a, a big greenhouse that I overwinter my plants in, but it invariably gets bugs, so I don't put the tomatoes in it. And then I have a little green um, portable kind, you know, take apart, put together. That I do most of my seedling raising indoors under lights. In the yes. utility room. The utility room isn't particularly heated. There's a little space heater in it, but um, it's it stays pretty chilly, and the heater is just mostly for the cats. I mean, cause yeah. We have a couple that live out there. Um, and I found that growing them under lights, and of course I couldn't do 20,000 of them. I only <laughs> do a few hundred. Right. Uh, but it's... That's an easier way, I think, for most people to start yeah. if they can. And yeah. I just use, you know, four-foot fluorescent shop lights. Absolutely. And I set them right above the, right above the seedling leaves. And that seems to do a really good job for me. Then, of course, you do have the problem of hardening them off. Yes. And for people that have never done that before, I just take them out, put them under a tree for a couple hours the first day, yep. 
and yep. all day the second day, and then I move them into the sun by the third day. And, of course, when the weather is chilly, if it's below 55 at night, yeah. they're, they're, they come in. And I leave all of mine, actually, once I do that initial hardening, you know, slow and steady wins the race. You dapple sunlight or tree for a few days, then use them into sun. But mine are pretty much out in the driveway, even if it's down to 35. And so my, my, mine get really, really, really toughened up. And what I've found is the root development grows quite well, but a lot of times the tops take a while uh, for the heat. Another interesting thing that your listeners may notice is Heart-shaped and taste-shaped tomatoes hate windy, cold, wet weather. They'll behave just like eggplant, where they look like they're starting to wilt. They look like they're half-dead. They flop. But then when the sun comes out and you start getting some of the water out of the vascular system and they dry out, they perk right up again. Um, So it just seems as though they have less lignin, maybe less uh, rigidity in their stems. And when they do get filled with water, they just tell you how unhappy they are by drooping over in the tray. <laughs> it's all okay. You just got to wait for that sun to come back out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that's just good for people to know because it's yeah. easy to panic when you see something that's not doing well. It's, and it's, I've always noticed that things like Anna Russian, for example, yes, that's it. always look like they're going to die, even yep. when they're yep. fine. <laughs> Yeah. They've got kind of wispy like, foliage anyway. but Yes, blue eyes, brown eyes, you know, blonde hair, um, brown hair, and wispy-looking plants that wilt in the rain, and nice sturdy ones. And it's just a matter of the little genetic packages that are in each of these varieties that make them so diverse and so interesting. And when you grow a- enough of them long enough, you do start learning the individual personalities that each variety exhibits, even as young seedlings, even looking at the foliage shape and the nuances of the greens that it shows. Uh, and this is when you know you've got to see someone for help because you've gotten way too up close and personal with <laughs> tomato plants. <laughs> well, those of us that love tomatoes, um, we put up with a lot. And, you know, we're kind of like crazy cat ladies. Yes. And before anybody jumps on me about talking about crazy cat ladies, I have to tell you, I am one. So <laughs> it's not a problem. These cats just find me. Um, but, but yeah, you, you do spend time, and a lot of people think, well, they should know all of this to begin with. But, yeah. you know, I learn something every time I talk to another garden enthusiast. Yes. And yep. I'm well over 60 years old. And I'm still learning. I've been gardening since I was three. Yep. yep. So, every time so, I go do a talk, every time I have some, I do a book signing and somebody comes up to me, they share something with me invariably that will be a variation on something, something I haven't tried, something I need to try, and I share something with them. And I, we just the, the knowledge can actually grow exponentially if you just open your mind up and just listen and hear all of these wonderful techniques. And some of them may be untrusted. I mean, untested. Some of them have been handed down, and handed down in families, and maybe they've not been put to the control of studies, but the thing is they work for them. And if they work for them, then it's worth you trying it to see if it works for you. It's, um, it, there's no, you know, there's so many different ways to do everything in the garden. Um, it, just that variety of approach means it will never be boring to you because, you know, plant it differently, plant a different variety, uh, feed it differently, um, just vary it, and, and it makes it really... Now, this is for someone like me who likes change, and I'm sure 
there are there are people who like more of regimen and less change, and gardening is fine for them too because they can find something that works for them, stick to it, document it, and just follow it to a T, and that will give them the results they're looking for. Yeah, even some of the most unorthodox ways of starting plants that I've heard of work for the people that it that do it because yes. they're aware of all the little nuances and things that that maybe another person doing this, you know, doing what looks like the same t- technique don't do because we haven't had the experience doing it that way. So if you like to do it the same way all the time, by all means, go ahead and do it. I'm kind of more another, an experimenter myself. Me too. And there's a really important element here in that you can blog something, write something, write something down that you've been doing your whole life. If somebody wrote down, and they times they would say, wait a minute, what did you just do there? And you're like, oh, I just did such and such. And like, well, you didn't write that down. So when we, when we have some of these techniques that are so embedded in us and so practiced, we take some of the things we do for granted, for granted. And it really the best way to show somebody how to do a technique is to just have them standing next to you or watching a YouTube video or what you're doing. And then they can see, because there's no way to capture in words all of the little twists and turns and flourishes and, and teeny tiny little things that you don't anymore think they make a big difference. But they could make the significant difference between success and failure. It's, uh, it's fascinating when you think about some of those things. Okay, we have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back right after this. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Craig LaHoulier, who is known as the North Carolina Tomato Man. And of course, he is famous for his book, Epic Tomatoes. And if you don't have that book and you love tomatoes, please go out and treat yourself or ask somebody for it for a gift or something like that. It is well worth reading. It's just full of information and stories and wonderful stuff. But a lot of people don't know that Craig also is very much into peppers and eggplants. And so let's talk about them for a while because we really haven't done that yet. Great. And and first, thank you so much for your kind words on the book, Daryl. It, it really, really means a lot, and I appreciate it. So, yeah, I guess if you could say that, well, in my professional world, I majored in chemistry, and I minored in biology and math. And in my horticultural world, I, you could say I major in tomatoes, and I minor in peppers and eggplant. It's just, it's just kind of the way I look at it. 
and, and I probably have a double minor in melons and beans, but I haven't been able to exercise those as much because I just don't have the growing space for it. Sure. Um, so when we think about tomatoes, we think about the joy of the diversity of the colors and the flavors. And the reason that if you have a tomato tasting instead of a kohlrabi tasting or a parsnip tasting, you're going to have scads of people coming out of the woodwork for it. It's, it's all of the different flavors and nuances. It's fascinating. With peppers and an eggplant, you get a slightly different theme. Even though we've been eating peppers and growing peppers far, far longer than tomatoes, the relative diversity of types, for, for whatever reason, seems to be somewhat less. And so if you look at the Seed Savers catalog and there's 12,000 different types of tomatoes, there's several hundred different types of peppers. If you look in several, maybe 100, 150 types of eggplant. And, and if you look at seed catalogs, historically speaking, the numbers of entries for tomatoes far exceeded the peppers and eggplant. And I think part of this is the culinary aspect and just um, just the fascination with all of the possibilities. Because if you, if you go to the store or farmer's market and you look at peppers and you look at eggplant, you're well aware that the colors that we now can have access to are fantastic. And eggplants can be fat. They can be skinny, teardrop-shaped, uh, as small as a ping-pong ball, as wrinkled and squat as a pumpkin. Uh, they can be all shades from black up to white, including in between greens and purples and lavenders and pinks. They can be striped and shaded and have jagged lines um, that look like somebody sat there with a pen and ink and just colored them in. You look at peppers and you see uh, the bell peppers of the rainbows of colors, the, the gorgeous lavenders, the rich golds, um, you know, sure, we've, most of us in this country up till maybe a few decades ago thought of the green pepper, but now culinarily we realize that when we let peppers go to their ripe color, which could be red, it could be yellow, it could be orange, it could be chocolate, the sweetness flies off the scale, they taste, they're sugary, sweet, and delicious, and the vitamin C goes off the charts, and they're much more healthy. Um, and we won't even, I, we could talk a long time about all the different hot peppers from the ones that give you the, the slow tinge to the ones that, you know, give you pain for the rest of the evening with their heat. Um, <laughs> now, so where, why I opened like this is to think about there's less of a fascination with peppers and eggplant because a sweet pepper picked unripe tastes like a green pepper. So mm -hmm. if a pepper goes from purple to red, that purple pepper will taste pretty much like a green pepper that goes from green to red. Um, if you taste the pepper at its ripest point, it will taste really sweet and fruity, and that doesn't—it doesn't really matter whether it's yellow or orange or red. Now there are nuances and maybe degrees of sweetness, but um, we grow peppers mainly to use as incredible accents in our food. Whether we sauté them, whether we stuff them, whether we grill them, um, you don't usually sit and plate a whole range of pepper types and just sit them, eat them raw like you do with tomatoes. And you certainly don't plate a whole plate full of raw different colored eggplant. So in my view, peppers and eggplant are grown for their culinary use, and each one of them has many specific useful culinary uses. My wife and I have fallen in love with eggplant over the last five or six years, and we can't grow and eat enough of it. But an eggplant pretty much tastes like an eggplant, and 
the variations in the flavor of the eggplant are going to be due to how fresh it is. Once you eat a fresh homegrown eggplant, you will probably not want to go to a grocery store and pick a bitter, soft eggplant that's been sitting there for a while. It's just They're just not for that sure. palatable. They're not palatable. Um, but it's the colors. And so when I think of the colors of peppers, I think of just putting lots of colors in my garden and in my salads and in my food, and I'm not worried so much about taste. When I think of eggplant, I'm not really at all worried about taste so much as how do I make this garden interesting by growing these different colors, and it's more the shape utility, where if you like to make an eggplant parmesan, if you like to cut the big slabs to grow, you would grow certain types. If you if you like to just um, maybe grill them and put slivers of garlic in or roast them and make baba ganoush, the slender ones are fine. And then there's cultural preferences where uh, people from India, people from Japan and China will be more accustomed to the long slender ones like the ichiban. And people, from, people of Italian ancestry who love their eggplant parmesan will love the big round globe-shaped prosperosas and rositas. Um, and so I've, I've mentioned a few of my favorites in peppers, I love orange bell. I love islander, which is one that goes from lavender to cr- cream to lavender to red, and the chocolate bells that look like a piece of, of a Hershey's chocolate bar. Uh, for the eggplant, the stripe, the white and the white and purple stripe, Listata de Gandia, which is an heirloom from Italy. The beautiful pinky violet Rosita, the the dusky purple Prosperosa, um, and then you get the white ones like Cloud Nine. So the choice really for those is made on how you want to use it and what colors you like. Um, what I have found fascinating about peppers and eggplant is we, we, we live in Raleigh. We garden in the soil that if you dig into it, you can pull up a brick or a flower pot. It's, it's horrible. It's red clay. Mm-hmm. That means it's cool. So even on a hot summer's day, it's very tough to get heat into that clay soil, which is where the roots of those pepper and eggplant are. And for years, I'd grow them, and I'd get moderate to disappointing yields. And I'd think, what is so tough about growing peppers and eggplant? What's wrong? Then when I started moving my garden to the driveway and moving to containers and started putting my eggplant and peppers in straw bales or grow bags or pots, the root zone is elevated. The sun is beating on those bales and pots and grow bags. My yields ended up going up 20-fold to where... I will grow a bell pepper plant in a five-gallon container, and I'll pick 15, 20, 25 bell peppers off that plant or 15, 20 eggplants off that plant. So so really anyone who has not gone to more of a raised bed type, container type, grow bag, straw bale, some method where you're elevating the roots upward and the sun can really hit and heat those, if you've been disappointed growing them the traditional way, try that, and you'll be just so excited at what you see happen to your yields, and uh, that will make you really happy, I think. I will second that because for years and years, I'd plant lots of pepper plants and eggplants, and, you know, and, and that was just to get a fairly modest yield. Yeah. And yeah. I found that when I had to move my gardens to the front end of the driveway where there was some sun and was growing in containers, I I really cut back on the number. If I grow, yeah. I, I like to grow a little round when I of the eggplants and and like yeah. farmers long the Japanese eggplant, and sure. one of each plant is plenty. 
and yeah, I grow yeah. Carmen peppers, and yes. Carmen's are my favorite. They're a hybrid. I know they're not an heirloom, but they produce like crazy, and especially so in a container. And the yes. smaller containers work better yeah. than the yeah. large ones do. And I think that's particularly the case for uh, hot peppers, which generally tend yes. to come also from the same kinds of regions that eggplants came from, hot deserts uh-huh. and, and southern Italy and stuff like that. So, yes, I absolutely follow your recommendation on that and, yeah. and would like everybody else to at least give it a try. And then yeah. you can hate us if it doesn't work. <laughs> but I, 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 and then I, I think it yeah, will. Two, and then two other real quick things to say is that People do struggle with tomatoes because of the numbers of diseases that seem to hit them. They are fussier, whereas eggplant, if you can get them through the early flea beetle stage, and peppers, which never really do go through much of an awkward stage, are, to me, easier to grow well year after year consistently than tomatoes. They're, they're just less fussy plants, and they seem to have a, a greater lust to just produce lots of seed. And to produce lots of seed, they like to produce lots of fruit. Um, so, yeah, they're... I would love to get everybody, I don't think people could ever get as inherently excited about peppers and eggplant. I mean, yeah, peppers and eggplant and tomato just because of the additional flavor characteristics. And there are far less heirlooms with really fascinating stories in the pepper and eggplant family than there are tomatoes. But they should be an equally relevant part of everyone's garden just because you can grow them and they're so much better than what you can buy in the store. And you're saving a ton of money when you grow your own sweet peppers. Oh, yeah, they're so expensive in the store. I, it just blows me away when I see the, the price for yeah. three different colors of bell pepper packaged, you know, yeah. and, and I can grow that from a couple of plants and have more than what I need. I mean, I, I grow if I grow extra plants, I'm always sending stuff over to the, the food bank because yes. Yes, yes. it just does produce so much. Now I have a question about seeds. How do you save seeds from an eggplant? Seeds from eggplant are are kind of fun, and what you realize is that no matter what color an eggplant starts and matures at, so varieties such as uh, New York Improved, which is one of the black teardrop-shaped, it's a really dark purple, you want to pick one that's glossy and firm. You don't want it to go dull. But if you want to save seeds, you let it not only start going dull, but let it hang in the plant until it goes a deep golden color. So every colored eggplant, pink, white, purple, will mature gold. Once it goes gold, you bring it in the house and just cut it in half. The flesh will start softening. And what I do is put it in a bowl and just work my fingers around the flesh and the seeds, and the seeds will come out of the flesh and sink. And then you just decant off the flesh and put it in your compost bin, rinse it and sieve it a few times, and you can get three, four hundred seeds out of one eggplant. And since wow. eggplant seed really only lasts, a tomato seed will last 10 to 12 years stored just at ambient temperature. Eggplant is a little bit shorter. I found five to six years. So you don't need much. But the eggplant from one eggplant will serve you well for a long time. Uh, Scoop it onto a paper plate, let it air dry for a week or so. You've got yourself hundreds of eggplant seeds that you can share with friends. You can plant in the future. And if you if you grow a hybrid that you like, say an Ichiban or Orient Express, I've started developing some great eggplants of my own by growing out saved hybrid seed. Grow out maybe ten plants, you see this really interesting array of types. 
It's from Orient Express. I've seen blacks and lavenders and whites and pinks. Pick one you like. That's now the third generation. Save seeds from that and grow another 10 plants. By, by growing out, by, by dehybridizing hybrid eggplant, you can create your own really wonderful eggplant in about five or six years, and you can give it a name and just run with it. You can do the same thing with hybrid peppers as well, just uh, save seeds, grow out an array of them, see what the possibilities are, hone in on one you love, and then just do your seed selection starting with that and repeat. Get friends involved. Uh, you know, call some friends, say, I'm trying to develop a pepper. You want to grow a few plants out for me, and if they get interesting things, have them bring you the pepper. We're getting into like fun in the garden now. But we yeah. have to take a little break right now. We'll come back and continue this conversation in just a minute. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Craig LaHuyer, the NC Tomato Man, and he's We've been talking, before the break, we were talking about eggplants and stuff like that. And, Craig, I have to say that that was just another one of my garden revelations. I didn't know that they turn golden after a while. I've had them shrivel on the vine, but I've never had one turn golden, and I am going to try. And maybe it's my fault because I just sort of get tired of them after a while, and I, <laughs> I kind of put them on ignore, and maybe yeah. I'm not watering enough or, or something. Um, but I'm going to give that a try this year because I had some that I liked last year, and I just yeah. couldn't, you know, they just didn't. Um, yeah. So well, I love the term it? you just used, putting it on ignore. You've just given me my saying for the day. Okay, <laughs> plan on ignore. All right. I love to get clips from people that I can then reapply in different ways. So. <laughs> okay. Well, it's yours. You're welcome to. All right. All right. So, what else do you have going on in the garden besides growing peppers, eggplants, yeah. tomatoes? What are your projects? What What are you planning for this year? Oh, so we're going to have a fun year, and and. The, the interesting challenge for this year is to weave the activities around getting my garden in. And so I, I felt the world was here the last two days, and I'm planting my very first tomato plant in a grow bag for the year because, because where I am right now is the seedlings um, will be disappearing out of my driveway within two weeks, and those will be replaced by the 200 to 250 containers that then will yield the roughly ton of produce that will feed the Lahulier family in the upcoming year and probably oh, wow. the neighbors that come snooping by and say, hmm, got a spare tomato on you? And I'm like, sure. Um, 
so the projects this year, we now, um, as I think we may have spoken of in the last show, have 60 new dwarf varieties out in various seed companies. And I know that Victory out in uh, Oregon is one company that is, is working hard to get all 60. Tatiana's Tomato Bay Sample Seed Shop, Heritage's uh, Seed Market are three others. And now other companies such as Southern Exposure Seed Exchange are seeing the value and the interest and they're getting more and more to work out. So, so I expect them to spread. But last year I made 22 completely crazy crosses to start off some new dwarf work because the two classes that we've left undone up till now are dwarf-growing paste tomatoes. So, you know, a nice Roma type, maybe four to six inches long, two inches wide, really meaty, growing on a nice compact three- to four-foot plant. And cherry tomatoes. So I actually... And sun, and sun gold in a few of my crosses to see what the possibilities are. Can we get dwarf-growing cherry tomatoes that start approaching the flavor of sun gold? So I'm gonna, that's my R&D for the year is working through some of these uh, new crosses. Um, I'm, I want to also grow out the 24 new ones. So last year I grew out the 36 that were released at the time in straw bales, and they did great, and I got to do comparisons. This year, I'm growing uh, the 24 brand newest ones in straw bales to compare them. Um, so that's the dwarf part. We just mentioned all of the family indeterminants I want to grow. And then I wanted to go back to the very beginning of when Cherokee Purple was sent to me, when Cherokee Chocolate appeared, when Cherokee Green appeared, when I developed Lucky Cross, and get to some of my earliest selections and then compare what they used to look like when I first named them and selected them to what they're looking like now, to see if if we're veering off course or are we have we still got it. And I'm I'm going to grow them in five gallon containers, severely prune them. They're indeterminate, so I'm only going to let them get four or five feet tall. Only let one or two fruit clusters develop, purely just for seed saving observation and assessment. Craig, how do you um, how much change do you think you're going to get in that Cherokee purple over the years? Because it's been what twenty something years. Yeah, um, so I received it in 1990, and I got, so I got my first look at it when I grew it out in 1990, and then 1991 is when it was named, and so I got a really good look at it back then. And then, you know, you, you grow out the source seed from Mr. Green I was growing as, as long as it lasted, and then now I keep family trees of my varieties. And, and so one of my little mini projects that I'm really having fun with this year is I've, I've gone to Cherokee Purple, Cherokee Chocolate, Lucky Cross, and Brandywine, four of my favorite flavored varieties. And um, I'm growing the, the, the seed selection that is the oldest and closest to the origin that will still germinate well. And I think I'm going to look at at least half a dozen of each. What happens is, over time, people will be saving seeds and they're, they're unwittingly selecting for something. So maybe a plant has smoother fruit and you think, well, that's really pretty, and you save seeds from the tomatoes on that fruit. And if you repeat that, it, it's still Cherokee purple, but not quite, because you're selecting for some slightly different characteristics of fruit shape. There's an interesting example of that happening locally with um, a, few, a few local growers who love Cherokee purple, and they save their own seed, but they want something that cracks less and it's a little bit bigger. Uh, one of those vendors actually gave me a fruit when we were doing the book photography, 
the internal structures have changed, and the flavor is diminished. Wow. And to them, it's still Cherokee purple. But to me, it is their selection of Cherokee purple, which may be of a more um, pleasing look so that it sells better to the customers. But to me, there's two things. Number one, we, we grow tomatoes to eat, and I want to maintain that great flavor. And number two, we want to keep the genetics true to the origin. And that's why, in a way, what I'm doing is a check this year as well as a possible reselection to see if uh, there's something that's kind of going a little bit amiss and I'm seeing a little bit of drift due to maybe some pollen getting in there. So, that I mean, this is wonky stuff. It's, I'm a chemist by training, so, of course, my laboratory has to include some of these uh, more esoteric projects. Um, the benefactors are going to be some of the people getting plants off me because they're going to have some Cherokee Purple Chocolate Lucky Cross Brandywine that go way, way back in time to when I first started saving the seed. So isn't that kind of a fun a fun that, thing to be doing, Daryl? <laughs> that is so cool. I've noticed, I've had to buy Cherokee Purple a few times over the last several years, and I've noticed that um, they're not, they don't, you know, I was wondering whether they were just whether it was me or whether, in fact, they had changed. And, of course, weather makes a difference in the taste from year to year, whether it's a dry year or a wet year. And I found that it makes a difference whether I'm growing in the ground or in containers. Um, But some of them, the skin seemed to be thicker. They didn't, you know, in the olden days, of course, you might pick one and have it, you know, pretty well break in your hand. And these weren't doing that. But I didn't uh, well, I'll tell you what. the flavor either. When I, when, I, when I do my little experiment, um, you will get some seeds or perhaps plants for me next year um, to, to kind of bring yourself back to where Cherokee Purple tasted really good, if, it, if, it, if I did indeed find that it shifted a little bit. So we'll, uh, we'll have some answers come July or August. And, uh, but, you know, the thing about gardening, as I'm sure you know, is the journey, the planting of the seed, watching them germinate, um, tending, seeing what, what appears. I also find the journey of gardening even more fun than the actual destination when you pick the fruit and taste it. Um, it's just the daily set of activities of seeing what's changing, what's happening. It, it makes it just the best hobby in the world, I think. I think so, too. You're always growing, always learning um, and observing. And, of course, in the first segment, we talked about the peaceful nature of it. What else do you have um, planned for this? Your sure. Here. Well, so we've talked about those really cool family heirlooms, so I'm going to have little sets of people's relatives growing in my garden. We've got all of the kind of my favorites that I'm going to be looking at to see if they're staying true. And then there will be um, a bit of work dwarf project where though we've got 60 varieties out there now we're really excited about that the two classes of tomatoes that we've left behind a little bit have been cherry tomatoes and paste tomatoes and and really the reason that we made that decision is i think a lot of gardeners when they think of tomatoes they think of big tomatoes that can cover a slice of bread and we wanted the initial set of dwarfs to really give people the heirloom indeterminate tomato experience but in a dwarf, um, our dwarf growth, ha- growth habit, and we've done that. So now, last year I made some crosses using sun gold, Mexico midget, uh, a variety called the egg yolk, um, just to, to work some really good flavored cherry genes into some of our dwarfs. And this is all bets are off. We, we have no idea um, 
what these are going to be like, which makes it really, really fun. So I'm going to be doing some dwarf hunting now. I've germinated some of the second-generation seeds. 25% of them come up dwarf, and those are the ones you plant out. Already we know that uh, one of our really good growers in California has been, because she's in California, she could play around in her greenhouse and squeeze extra seasons in. And I sent her one that was Mexico Midget, which is a teeny tiny red pea-sized tomato mm -hmm. that we crossed with a one-pound green-fleshed when ripe dwarf. We called, oh, wow. <laughs> we called it Teen Seed Across because Mexico Midget is a teensy little tomato. Um, mm -hmm. We wanted to see if we can get that Mexico Midget flavor and some of its inherent disease tolerance into uh, a dwarf. And she's she grew four plants, and she got four different cherry tomatoes, a pink, a green, a yellow, and a purple, and they all taste cool. good. So there we go. We've already got now four possible leads. Um, I'm fascinated to see what happens when you take a, a, a hybrid tomato and use it in a cross. Can we get that exquisite, unique sun gold flavor to start, to start showing up in some of our dwarfs? And if we find it, can we make sure that it's stable, or will it be fleeting? Where You've got it one season, save seeds, and the next year it's not quite there. So, yeah, we're rolling up our sleeves, and we've used speckled Roman, which is a beautiful six-inch long, two-inch wide um, sausage-shaped paste tomato that's red with gold stripes. We've used that with a bunch of our dwarf crosses to see if we get some really delicious dwarf uh, tomatoes, um, more flavor than Roma we're going for. You know, Roma pumps them Anything out. would have more flavor than Roma. Yeah. I, <laughs> I often tell people at Tomato Talks, I bet not many of you run to the grocery store, grab a Roma off the shelf, take a big bite and say, man, that's a delicious tomato. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, we are running out of time, Craig, yeah, but sure. um, I... Uh, we're going to have to get you back and talk more about this. I can't believe how much ground we cover in one show, and there's always more. There's always more to talk about. Um, so tell people where they can find you on your website. Sure. Yeah, so it's pretty easy now. My new website is just www.craiglehulier.com. Uh, anybody who's tried to find me using nctomatoman.com or epictomatoes.com will have been redirected to craigalhulia.com. I'm blogging. Um, I'll be talking about my projects and sharing where I'm going to be next. Um, one of the amazing parts of the last year and a half has been some of the places uh, that I get to go. And hope to run into some of your listeners there. And if they do see me, you know, make, I, I hope they stop and say hello and say that they heard me on your show, Daryl. As always, I appreciate so much the opportunity to uh, just have a wonderful conversation with a great gardening friend, which is what you are. Yeah, you know, it's funny, and we've never met in person. We've known of each other for more than 20 yeah. years, and yeah. we've never met. But it's you, you pick up in a conversation just like we've, we were just talking door to, you know, over the back fence last yeah. year or something like that or, or five minutes ago. Gardeners know how to connect. Gardeners really know how to connect with each other, and when the connection is there, it's magical. It is magical, and I also hope that people will stop and, and introduce themselves, and maybe swap out some, give you some, give you some seeds that their family has saved, because that is sure. all part of the magic of gardening too. Yes. And I am afraid that we have run out of time. Alas, but you're, you'll come back sometime, right? Once you're done with your spring 
fling. I hope. You try to you try to keep me away, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you right here on America's Homegrown Veggie Show next week. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.